0: The Unstarving Artist Book is available now at unstarvingartistbook.com. Hey, Phil, how's it going?
1: It's going very well. Thank you. Pleasure to be on your podcast.
0: Thanks for coming. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to um, learning more about your story and and what you've done. So for folks who don't know you, can you share a bit about yourself at a high level and uh, some of the work you did over your career? Phil, can you hear me?
1: Yes, you froze up there on the screen, and so I didn't hear the question that you posed.
0: No problem, no problem. So why don't you just briefly give a little introduction of yourself, and then we can jump into your story um, how you got started as an archivist and, and go from there.
1: Okay. Uh, for the majority of my professional career, I was the archivist for the Coca-Cola Company, from 1977 until 2013. Uh, prior to that, I was an archivist at Syracuse University in upstate New York. I also served as archivist for an organization called the Ball Institute in Philadelphia, which collected materials relating to immigration to the United States.
0: <laughs> Very interesting. Well, actually, let's start with this uh why don't you share what is archiving for folks who don't know
1: sure well basically archivists are people who preserve the documentary record of institutions so for instance there's been a lot in the news lately about the national archives and whether donald trump uh, had the right to move documents into uh, his florida residence uh that's a prime example of what an archivist does and obviously the National Archives was extremely concerned. Of records that belonged to the government were in the hands of the of the former president, and so the whole controversy, the raid on Mar-a-Lago, and all was all about uh, returning the records to where they belonged. So, there are a lot of different ways that people uh, who are archivists work. Um, I would say. A large majority of people who are in the field either are, either work with the state or federal government or they work with colleges and universities. Those are probably the two largest groups of, of, of people or organizations rather who uh, have archives and hire uh, archivists to manage their collections. Uh, you can also find religious organizations uh, who maintain archives. Uh, the archdiocese of Atlanta, for instance, where I live, has a has an archives. Um, many corporations also de- determine that their historical records are important, and they hire an archivist to manage its records. I worked for Coca-Cola for 36 years, but other companies that do similar things are companies like McDonald's, B.M., um, Procter and Gamble, uh, Chase Manhattan. The New York Stock Exchange, so it's sort of a, a very varied group of organizations that have a need to uh, manage and uh, preserve their historical records, and that's really what the archivist does. They're the person who has the responsibility to collect the records and then preserve them in a format so that people can use them in you know years to come.
0: That's really helpful. So. Uh government institutions, um, colleges, universities, religious institutions, and corporations, um, they all have archiving functions. But what are the benefits or what sort of things do they typically archive? And what are the use cases for those different types of archives?
1: Well, you know, it's very different considering the situation that we're talking about. For instance, I've referenced the National Archives. Their responsibility is to preserve and maintain the records of the government. Uh, whether it's, if it's a state, if it's the state archives and Georgia does have a state archives, um, their responsibility is to preserve the records, of the state of, of Georgia that have historical significance and potential research interest to historians and other people who are researching the functions of, of government colleges, and universities, um, frequently will maintain their own records. So for instance, University of Virginia, where you went to school, uh, they keep records relating to the university, which we call university archives. But the university also goes out and collects papers from individuals who have made an impact on society. Could be government officials, it could be authors, it could be
2: uh,
1: social workers, anybody who they feel, has made a significant contribution to society and that the collection falls within the purview of what the university feels is important. Of course, many universities, they want to have a very vibrant uh, collection of historical records to support faculty research and to encourage their students to learn about primary source uh, investigations.
0: Super interesting. So, On the government side, is it predominantly for historical preservation or is it sometimes that they need to keep a record of what happened? So if there are legal issues or legal risks, they have evidence of, you know, paper trails and things like that in a government setting.
1: I think both of those answers are correct, Um, but the primary function of the National Archives, you use that as the example, is to collect papers of historical significance that have been created by the government and its various bodies. Uh, and because if you don't do that, then you, you, you have no, no memory. You have uh, no memory of what happened in the government, when it happened, why it happened. And, and of course, you know, as you go on through the years, some of these things have you know incredible uh, significance. Um, right now, there's a a new film that's it's either open up or is opening this weekend called Oppenheimer, um, and yep. Oppenheimer was in, in charge of the Los Alamos project that ended up with the atomic bomb. The uh, movie is based on a very extensive book that was done. Over several decades, by a couple of authors, and they had to use a lot of the federal records to really understand what was happening in the atomic research project in Los Alamos and what Oppenheimer's role was in that process. And if you know anything about Oppenheimer, you know that later in his life, he was accused of being a communist and was basically railroaded out of any future government work. If you didn't have all of those records available, A, that book could not have been published and B, this movie could not have been made.
0: That makes a ton of sense. So it sounds like it's, uh, um, when, you know, professional historians, professional scholars are doing their research, creating popular novels, popular textbooks, things like that, a lot of times their first uh, port of call is to go to archives because those archives have collected a lot of the primary sources that they can reference. Um, very interesting. Is. So and, how and do you of, have...
1: I'm oh, sorry. Go ahead.
0: go
1: ahead. I was going to say most universities will... No, please go ahead. ...national databases so that you can be sitting in Virginia and you want to reference something on the West Coast, that you can go and find information online so you know which institutions hold records that are pertinent to your area of research. So that's the other part that's very important in the profession, is not only to collect these things, but also to make them available intellectually to a very wide audience.
0: Yes, because if you have the collection, but no one knows if it's all buried, uh, it's not easily accessible, then it's not useful. (laughs) It makes me think of the end of uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark and the Indiana yeah, sure. Jones movie. <laughs> yeah, you know that exactly. Yes, very much. So. <laughs> you don't want your archives like that, typically. <laughs> maybe
1: just a bit different from that. You know. Yeah.
0: Yes. Yes. So, how does one learn about the? How did How did you learn about the field of archiving, and how did you initially kind of get, get drawn to it? Okay.
1: Well. um... I was in graduate school, at Syracuse University, and had finished my master's degree and was trying to determine whether or not I wanted to go on for a doctorate. And to be perfectly honest, I was somewhat burned out at that point in time and t- talked to my advisor, uh, who basically said to me, well, if you need a little time off, you might want to go and talk to the people in the university library because they have a position open in the university archives, and they're looking for somebody to join the staff. So uh, I took that little, you know, curve away from academic research and interviewed for the job and was hired.
0: And what did you do your this, master's in? Were you doing your master's in archiving, or was it a different feel?
1: You know, no, my, my master's was in general American history. Um, you know, I thought uh, that I was going to end up teaching at some point in time, and so that was sort of the degree. I was looking forward to kind of give me some more credentials to get into the teaching profession. Um, But I took this little detour into archives and found that I was absolutely fascinated with the area. Um, Now, this happened in the late 60s. Uh, I would not advise anybody today to try to use the same path that I took because they were willing to teach me on the job, basically, how to work at archives, how to Process collections, how to describe them, et cetera, et cetera. Today, if you wanted to do something similar, most likely uh, employers would be asking you for uh, advanced degrees with an archival uh, emphasis uh, and certainly some uh, previous work experience in the field so that they're not teaching a neophyte like I was, you know, how to do, do the job. But long story short, I really, you know, became fascinated with the era and never went back to get my doctorate, never went back to to teach, Uh, you know, immersed myself in this field. And for the rest of my professional career, I served as an archivist in different capacity.
0: Very interesting. I imagine if you love to learn, if you're very intellectually curious, academically inclined, uh, stumbling upon that and then realizing you get to spend your days looking at primary resources, taking care of them. It must be pretty interesting uh, and attractive.
1: <laughs> it, it, it absolutely is. The, the, the real danger of uh, of this profession is that you sometimes get so deep into it. You want to read every document and, and you want to understand everything if you do that, you'll never get a collection process to never be able to make it available <laughs> to other people. Uh, so that's sort of the danger. If you become a, a researcher yourself, then that sometimes blows the process down of making those materials available to other academics who could really you know, benefit from having access to primary source materials.
0: Got it. Now, a lot of what we've talked about so far, it sounds like it's been uh, historical letters, papers, things like that. How often would an archive have artwork or sculpture or media of other types in their collections?
1: Um, that certainly depends on what the focus of the institution might be. For instance, um, while well, well, I was at Coca-Cola, uh, we had a very extensive art collection. Because um, advertising, particularly advertising that was created prior to the mid 1950s, usually began with a work of art. That's how a print ad was created. That's how a calendar was created. That's how um, things like serving trays and, and other forms of what we would call memorabilia today start. It starts with a piece of artwork. And fortunately, the company had, uh, retained very large portion of the artwork that was used to create ad- advertising materials. So we did have, uh, original painting by people like Norman Rockwell, for instance, who did calendars for Coca-Cola. Uh, there was a man who, uh, worked for Coca-Cola for about four decades creating Christmas images of Santa Claus. And we had almost all of his original paintings. So that certainly was a very important part of, of our collection um, because these were the illustrators who worked in, uh, in, in the commercial field, not just for Coca-Cola, but for many other commercial organizations. Hen Sunbloom, for instance, who created the Coca-Cola Santa Claus, he also created the Quaker Oats Man. And he also created Aunt Jemima. So these guys didn't just work for one company. They worked for many companies. And Norman Rockwell did the same thing. He's probably best known for his paintings for the Saturday Evening Post. But he did a lot of commercial work as well, including creating calendars for Coca-Cola. Now, if you go to a college or a university, uh, for instance, when I was at uh, Syracuse University, we had a very strong uh program academic program in industrial design and so one of the things that we actively created actively collected were the papers of famous industrial designers and so that when you got you've certainly got their papers but you also got these incredible things that they produced and uh, so there, there were these artifacts that were tables and chairs and other kinds of, uh, of things that you know we're part of your everyday life. Uh, Models
0: perhaps, or things like that. I'm I'm sorry. Models, models, models of things that they were building or.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So it's just not always two dimensional stuff, The three dimensional element certainly comes to play. If you're an institution, uh, like the archives of American art in Washington, DC, you're definitely going to be looking to, to, uh, have the original paintings, sketches, um, models, uh, sculpture. Those people developed and, uh, and and made as part of their professional career. So, yeah, it's not always two dimensional. Very frequently, it's it's three dimensional items as well. So, yeah, it's it, it really does go sort of beyond what you might think of when you say the word archives. You're probably thinking of old papers. And things like that, of which there certainly is, uh, but there are certainly many other aspects to what you what you collect, um, and and depending on what the focus is of a parent organization, you may collect more or less of, of the three dimensional kind of items.
0: Was there any items in your career where they'd show up, or you you knew you were getting them in the archive, and you thought to yourself, how how the heck are we gonna? store this or preserve this? Were there any kind of out-of-the-box <laughs> items you had to take care of?
1: Um, yeah. Um, for instance, um, actually, before I came to the company, uh, one of my predecessors, he actually acquired a, an 1880 soda fountain. And this thing was huge. Um, it, it It did not <laughs> easily fit into the space that we had allocated for for the archives. So we actually had to store it in a, an off-site warehouse until we opened up um, our museum called The World of Coca-Cola, where we could actually install it and have people uh, in, see and enjoy what an 1880s soda fountain actually looked like and how it operated. But, yeah, it certainly was a, a, a rather large item to deal with. Um I also had to deal uh, with... Um, a route truck that one of our bottlers uh, gave us. Um, and while well, it was a very.
0: What kind of truck?
1: A, a delivery truck, a cocoa a delivery truck um, that you know, dated from the 1930s. And we were delighted to have it, but it did provide. Uh, it did give us a, a pause to try to think where on earth we're going to keep this thing and how are we going to maintain it. <laughs> uh, but we we found a way to do it, and and now it, it sits proudly in the uh, the world of Coca Cola, and it's a absolutely beautiful truck that was used in the streets of Buenos Aires in the nineteen thirties. So yeah, you definitely get those things. That's amazing. Just think about the um, uh, museum of of space and technology in in Washington. You know where they have got the Spirit of St Louis hanging. From the ceiling, and a good part of their collection is they, they, they don't have enough space in the DC location for the air and space. They have a second location out of uh, Dallas Airport for all of the different aircraft that they've acquired over time. So, yeah. it's, it's amazing what, uh, what can come through the doors and then what challenges uh, you have to deal with in order to to protect them and make sure that yeah, they're, they're being preserved for use at some point in the future.
0: Yes, that's, yeah, that's super interesting. Uh, so I like not only with, with a, that truck, for example, you weren't just focused on, um, how you in your possession, but actually keeping it maintained, keeping it clean. Yeah. Were you trying to go so far as to keep it operational?
1: Well, uh, no, uh, we we couldn't really do that <laughs> because w- once you get something inside your door, so to speak, you don't want it sitting there with gasoline and oil uh, and causing a potential fire hazard. So the first thing you have to do is kind of take all of those things away from it so that it, it no longer is operational. It really is. It is an artifact. Um, some people obviously... Uh, you know, people who collect antique cars, for instance, uh, and there are, as you well know, I'm sure their car museum, they have a very different approach to that because they do want them to be operational and they just have to take a lot of extra steps to be sure that things are safe and they're not going to cause a, a fire hazard or a danger to staff or visitors to the facility.
0: Yes. Um, well, let's go back for a second. Um, how did you tell me or walk me through how you got connected to the Coca-Cola company and started working there?
1: As it, again, just one of these funny little stories, you know, that uh, I wouldn't necessarily recommend this as a, as a path for people to pursue uh, in looking a career. But it so happened that I was working in Philadelphia uh, in 1977 I call it... Of mine just happened to mention in passing that uh, the Coca-Cola archivist was retiring and they were looking for somebody to take over that, that job. And so I thought about it for a little bit and got the information about the recruiter for the job and basically uh, called him up one day just to see kind of what this job was all about and, you know, whether it was something one, I was interested in, and two, they were interested in me. Um, so anyhow, a long story short, we ended up having a conversation for about an hour about the job and what it was, what was going to be required, and it seemed that I was at least a potential fit for uh, the job there. And so uh, after we had the conversation, a few days went by, and the recruiter called me back and said, we'd like to have you come to Atlanta to do an interview. I just said, sure, what, can, what harm can, can happen here? So I went down, interviewed for a day with the different people who were involved in the public relations or, uh, and the administrative arena, and we talked about the job and what they were looking for and the kind of person that they wanted to, to fill the role. And by the time I finished my interviews, uh, it really sounded like an absolutely fascinating rather unbelievable opportunity for somebody to come in and really develop a collection. It had been a collection that was not particularly well-maintained. They had a lot of stuff. The stuff was scattered in many different locations. Uh, They had never had a professional archivist uh, in the role. So the opportunity to sort of work with a corporation of the magnitude importance of coca-cola really sort of uh, intrigued me and so fortunately uh, they made a job offer uh, and I decided i would take a risk and move to atlanta uh, i don't think i mentioned Earth. i'm from the northeast i grew up in massachusetts my wife is from new york we would never basically lived in the South, we've never been in the South, we have no relatives in the South. So this was sort of a a leap of faith for us to sort of say, well, let's go and and try this for a year or two and see if it works out. And um, uh, we'll we'll see what happens. So fortunately for me, it did work out. The the job was every bit as fascinating as I thought it was going to be. Uh, People really respected what I brought to the table. Uh, and so I spent the next thirty-six years of my life uh, working at Coca-Cola and having just an incredible opportunity to uh, kind of manage the the history of an iconic American corporation, in in the process to build two museums uh, that that individually do do more than a people no excuse do more than a million people a year to. Uh, see what the history of Coca-Cola looked like. Those are things that you dream about as an archivist and very infrequently have an opportunity to do. That's
0: incredible. So, um, yeah, I would imagine. To take
1: history history and make it real, make it live, make it, you know, uh, kind of something that interact directly with consumers who loved our product. It's just, it's just amazing. I got to travel a fair amount around the world to visit our op- operations in different parts of the world and to help them understand what the heritage of the company means and why it's so important to have a, a heritage like Coca-Cola has.
0: That's incredible. So um, when you first started at Coke, because they were a private company and they were a corporation, did they already have, give you more budget and more resources to do your archiving work than you would have had at some of the other institutions you were a part of?
1: Not or did you have to kind of
0: push for budget and resources?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Let, let me just back up a step here. Um, the difference between sure. a corporate archivist and a university archivist is very significant uh, in the university setting. The universities understand the importance of records. They understand the importance of of libraries. They understand the importance of research. Uh, in the corporate world, uh, you have to make a case to convince senior management that heritage is important, that it is something that is worth preserving, and it's worth, it is something It's worth investing in. Um, Those things are not at the top of the um, psyche of most corporate executives. They don't think first of the history of the company. Most corporate executives, they're thinking about what's the next new great thing I can introduce to our consumers. Uh, And so you have to, as an archivist, put things in a perspective, argue for the fact that you need resources to preserve the ongoing history of the organization and to make those resources available to our associates globally. Uh, and so uh, so that was a really the, the charge coming into this was to not just collect stuff, but to try to make the information available in formats that anybody in our system could access. And that really became sort of, you know, the driving force for my uh, way of thinking about archives is, you know, yes, we want to collect stuff. Yes, we want to preserve things. But what we also want to do is we want to make sure that people can access the information and that we can make it as easy as possible for them to see whatever part of our history is relevant to the work that they're doing today.
0: Yes. So, um, yeah, I think a lot of folks who might be into the arts into the history academic, and they might be envisioning that you're off on an island, just collecting things on your own, <laughs> but it sounds like you had to learn how to, uh, really, uh, almost sell and make a business case, uh, for your efforts and your initiatives. Um, and, and think about different use cases that the organization, different stakeholders might have for your archives. Is that fair?
1: That is very fair. Um, you know, I've
0: always said to uh, my colleagues in the corporate
1: world, uh, you can't just sit back on your collections and expect that people are going to appreciate them and they're going to appreciate you. You have to be proactive to bring things forward. You have to be proactive in engaging with your stakeholders to be sure they understand why it's important to have these records and why it's important that we continue to collect these records. So, yes, so I would work very diligently to cultivate, you know, groups I knew would be my my clients. So it would be people like people in the communications arena, people in the public relations arena, our trademark attorneys, uh people who run our licensing programs, uh, who are looking for uh, collateral to you know, develop new, new products and services, uh, to our HR people for orientation uh, for programs. So you, you basically had to go and identify where the core support groups are gonna come from who would step up when things get tough and say, we need this resource here. And you know, tough times are going to come. Our cycles are going to go up and down. And when when they're down, is when you really have to to fight hard to keep keep your resources and keep keep your your folks employed, all that kind of good stuff. And so, yeah, you have to you have to be relevant. You have to be uh, present. You have to be visible, and you have to have a product that is important to uh, people in the organization.
0: So um, unpack a little bit more of that. What were some of the most common use cases or um, stakeholders that you work with that benefited from your work? Well, um, for instance, uh, public relations
1: people and communications people, they really rely on the fact that we have the records to support uh, what's happening in the corporate state. So for instance, if we're going to go and introduce A new diet product. What I'll bring to the table is say, hey, this is nothing new for us. We've been in the diet business since the early 60s when we introduced TAB as the first diet drink in our portfolio. So this is nothing new. This is part of what we do. Uh, To share with them, expanding the portfolio, uh, having new offerings for consumers, is something that's a part of our DNA. That's what makes Coca-Cola the company that it is we have always been innovative we've always been looking for the next big thing that would impact our consumers and so you bring that to the table and you plug that into whatever story you're telling about the latest product that you're uh, that you're introducing because what it goes to is it goes to the fact that innovation is part of the dna it's not like, hey, we're going to introduce this today and this tomorrow, and we're just going to be so fragmented with, with it that nobody will understand what we're up to. Um, this, this was, this was a. Glory. So if um,
0: if if they're if they're releasing a new diet product, for example, like you said, they can come to you and they could read about the history of every release of a diet product in the past and um, what what it was described, how it was messaged, and then they can use that to inform maybe press releases and media campaigns and things like that exactly. today.
1: It's, you can present the press releases that were issued at the time. You can show them the introductory commercials that were aired to sort of talk about this new brand. And then they can do what they, that does is it enables the, uh, the brand teams to sort of, uh, cherry pick the best ideas from the past and incorporate them into whatever they're doing today, so, or adapt the media. Uh, Obviously, in the 1960s, we had radio and television. We didn't have social media. We didn't have podcasts. We didn't have websites. Uh, Now we've got all those tools that make what we did in a different format in the 1960s just modernized. And you're, you're now able to talk to consumers much more directly than you were able to do. In the 1960s and so you take the good ideas throw away the bad ideas and and, and, you know and the other corollary to this is not everything you do is going to be successful so part of what my role was to let people know what things didn't work and why didn't they work uh so that we don't
0: document the landmines
1: (laughs) don't do it again well the biggest one probably for us in history is new Why, why, why did we do that in 1995? <laughs> you know, do a new formulation that you know, just made people crazy. Um, and I think we did learn from that. We did learn that you need to listen more closely to consumers. You need not to be so focused on your research, but to sort of understand in the broader context, how is this going to be received by people who've been your consumers at that point for 99 years and then suddenly you say, we're pulling this from the market and giving you something that's bitter. Well, yeah. that, that message did not go over well. And, uh, you know, so part of <laughs> what, what I did was document as much of that as I possibly could as to what went wrong, why it went wrong, so that the next time somebody was thinking about throwing out the baby with the bathwater, we did, we step back and say, oh, <laughs> what happened the last time that we did this? So yeah, so it's not it's not only documenting successes; it's documenting failures and understanding why things did not work at a given point in time. And that's the that's the beauty of, of having a historical record. It, it, it provides a complete sure of the organization. It, it it helps you understand when management made good decisions. It helps you understand when. Who made bad decisions and, and hopefully you'll learn from the good and you'll learn from the bad as well
0: and when you have an institution that's as old as coca-cola you could have people you know multiple generations of, of management leadership and if they are not careful they would make the same mistakes over, and over again because they don't have they, they need that like extra set of history uh, that they can reference so that makes a ton of sense um And I would imagine also, you know, in a more um, granular way, maybe there's a certain product Cope would come out with and you could see how it was received in different parts of the world. And maybe certain campaigns worked in Israel and others worked in Turkey and others worked in Latin America. And can you speak to that? Was that something that was also a common use case?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, not everything works well in the same way. Um, We had a campaign... Uh, an advertising campaign called cook Life in the 1970s. Um, Great, works well in English-speaking nations. When you take that outside the U.S. and you take it to uh, places like China and and you say the advertising campaign is cook Life, well, in there it sort of means like you're raising the ancestors from the dead. And that's not a good thing. You know, and so uh, that campaign slogan did not work well in certain markets because it had a totally different kind of meaning. Uh, and so you have to understand that. You have to understand that demographics that you're dealing with in Asia are different from the demographics you're dealing with in Europe and North America. Uh, and so, yes, and so you can document some of that and share some of that uh, with people so that. They at least think about it before they say, this is going to be a universal campaign this will ha- this will work in all 200 markets that were in around the world. That's probably not going to happen. And so you do have to, to understand that. And so if you've got some documentation to share with people of things that didn't work well, because we didn't take into account the uh, social dynamics of, of a different society. Uh, that helps us to be a better company, more focused on our consumers, and also not every product works in every country. So, in, in some cases, uh, you know, products that you know work in the United States don't work at all in you know in Asian countries. good example, um, in Japan, for instance, consumers are extremely fickle. Uh, Japan will sometimes launch multiple products in the course of a year and they'll only last six months and other consumers moved on to something else you know have to bring something else into the marketplace mm-hmm. so everything that you do doesn't have the same you know uh, impact uh it is they're, uh, they're not always going to work and so you have to be aware of, of that um And so that's where we can help out sometimes to sort of point out examples of where people didn't really take into into account differences uh, in how people approach the marketplace. And so understanding that makes us a a better company. That's why if you travel around the world and go to different places, uh, you'll see products that Coca-Cola produces in countries. That you'll never see in the United States because there's simply no market for them here. But you know, uh, a soy-based drink in uh, in Asia, for instance, might be extremely popular. But won't sell three cases in the in the United States. It's it's all really to better understand.
0: Do you remember the uh, the drink? Do you remember the drink, in Beverly?
1: Of course, I do. Yes, Do you know
0: Beverly that drink. Yes, yeah. Can you, well, for be- those who don't know, like? And I grew so I grew up in Atlanta where Phil is as well. And I've, I've been to the world of Coke. And if you're uh, a kid that grows up in Atlanta and you go to the world of Coke, one of the things everybody wants to try is this drink Beverly because it just has a very different taste profile. It's not appealing to, uh, <laughs> I don't know, uh, kids palates or maybe Western palates. Can you share a bit more about the story of Beverly sure. and, and where sure. that drink is present and popular?
2: You're right.
1: Um, Beverly was a drink that was produced in Italy. Um, it is a bitter-tasting drink. The closest comparison I can come up with is if you ever had Campari, it tastes something like that. It has a bitter taste to it. So Americans, by and large, don't are not really attracted to you know bitter-tasting drinks, and so we deliberately included Beverly in the portfolio of drinks that we had at the World of Coca-Cola that are not produced in the United States to make that point with the consumers. That, you know, in some cultures, this drink is extremely popular, but I can't <laughs> tell you how many times I sat in the room where they had the drink and I would just watch kids who had tried Beverly once <laughs> convince their friends to take a big gulp of Beverly. You can see their eyes would roll and they would start spluttering because it was not a taste that was pleasant uh, for them to, to enjoy. But it helps us to make the point. That we produce a wide variety of products that appeal to the specific tastes of people in a specific geographic area. I mean, there are some drinks in South America that are super sweet. I really just can't handle it at, at all. But it appeals to people in that you know, in that area of the world and so we we sell it and we sell a lot of it um you have to have a portfolio that is wide you have to have a portfolio that is inclusive uh, so that you can hopefully get into you know all of the different you know products that people enjoy wherever they happen to live uh, and for sure a very long time i mean until 1960 from 1886 until 1960, the Coca-Cola company had one product,
0: Coca-Cola. That was it.
1: So now
0: we've got- Wait, say, say that again. Until when?
1: Until 18, from 1886- How
0: long was it just-
1: Until 1960, we had one product, Coca-Cola. That was it. That was it.
0: I had no it idea. I had no idea. Wow. <laughs> from
1: 1915 <laughs> to 1955, we had one package. A six and a half ounce bottle and so when you have one product in one package you know you can do extremely well if you're a bottler of coca-cola because you don't have to worry about a whole lot of stuff you go you have know, one package that needs to fit on the shelf you, you know that makes that six and a half ounce bottle of coke all day long and you know bottlers did extremely well we started to complicate things a
0: lot let's pause on that yes Let's pause on that for a second because I think it's so important for people to hear because a lot of people who today they might have entrepreneurial ambitions um or artistic entrepreneurial ambitions, they want to sell their art or they want to sell uh, something that's a creative output. Um you see your if you're a consumer, most of the brands you interact with are brands like Coca-Cola, Walmart, Microsoft. They have a suite of products, a of portfolio products. And it's just, I think, so helpful to hear that for almost what uh uh Eight for almost eighty years, you had one product, and for most of that, it was in one package, and you just executed on that and yes. grew the grew the, uh, the the market for that.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And and this just so I put a historical context around this. Um, when the Coca-Cola bottling system was first established, uh, it began in eighteen ninety nine. Uh, up until then. Coca-Cola was only a soda fountain drink. Starting in 1899, they started to put the product in bottles. They developed the uh, bottling system based on the distance that a horse and cart could travel in the course of a day to reach a a customer. So in the early bottling systems, you see lots of bottlers Having fairly small geographic territories that they had responsibility for, because that was the limit to where they could get distribution. Now, gradually over time, when motorized vehicles were introduced, then all of that changed and the territories expanded, all that stuff. But still, the
0: highway system in the 50s,
1: all that stuff. Yeah. It's still a pretty simple business until the 1960s. You had one product, one package, just get out there, sell the living daylights out of it. And and most of our bottlers were extremely successful. And the third part of that is the price of the product was virtually unchanged for that whole period of time. It was sold for a nickel, a bottle. Just think of of that, that we had no price elasticity for almost 60 years in in the bottling business. So the nickel Coke kind of started to fade in the late fifties as sort of the, the economics you know, uh, really started to put the pressure to sort of raise the price. Um, and it went, you know, many markets Marcus went to six, seven, eight cents and then to a dime into a quarter, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but I mean, just think of that as a business model, one package, one product, fixed price point, uh, what a great business. I mean, you, you, you can make money doing that, you know?
0: And this dovetails really nicely into something I wanted to mention, you know, stepping back for a second, uh, when you and I first met and we connected you, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you said something about whether that Coca-Cola is really, um, uh, a marketing company or an advertising company. Um, you know, obviously the product is great and the product is core to it, but, um, can you share what you said again? Like what, how would you describe Coca-Cola? And, and at what point in the history of Coca-Cola did they sort of realize, you know what, we really are more about creating messaging, creating narrative, creating story, pushing out the word about the product, um, perhaps even more importantly than the product itself?
1: Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, if you would ask me to describe what Coca-Cola is, I would tell you that I believe this essentially is a marketing company. And so I think, and I think I, I provided that answer when you asked me, so what do you collect in the archives? And I said, because right. I believe that we are essentially a marketing company, and that is, sort of, these are the roots we go back to again and again. The focus on my collection is on marketing materials. And so in, in my collection, I put a premium on collecting all of the materials that touch the consumer. How does the messaging get to the consumer for many, many years? It was magazine and newspaper advertising, you know, later it became radio and television advertising. Uh, Today it's much more social media, uh, websites, uh, Facebook, Twitter, all social, uh, tools that, that people use. And so. You know, so I was there. I was really focused on preserving materials that told those stories, that told the story of how the company interacted with the consumer. What kind of messaging did they they send out? And so that's what I wanted to collect to be able to tell a story. So in some cases, it is is advertising, but it can also be things like packaging. Uh, It can be cooler it can be vending machines it can be fixed cartons it, it can be lots of other things anything that we would use to communicate with the consumer about the benefits of the product so for example for years the longest running ad slogan that the company had was a, a slogan called the pause that refreshes and it was used from the 20s well into the 50s and even the early 60s in, in some places and what that basically says hey you know when you're tired in your workplace when you need a little pick pick me up from your day here's something that's going to provide some benefit to you and so simple little little message uh, but very very effective worked extremely well for particularly in in the print uh material uh, a um today obviously it's very very different today you don't see so you see some television ads for Coke but the majority of the communication today is going out through social media um, uh, it's going out it's on websites it's, it's on you know other tools that the company is using to communicate uh, with people don't put so many dollars into the television marketplace like we used to. Um, used to be television and radio in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, drove the business. If you are going to be successful, you'd better have a good TV and radio campaign that was going to engage with people. You know, that has all changed. And so the company needs to change. The company needs to find different ways of communicating with the consumers. And so the role of the archives today, I believe, is to be sure that we're documenting the way that we're continuing to uh, interact with consumers. And, you know, from an archive's perspective, it's much more difficult today. When you have a piece of paper, I know how to preserve that piece of paper for 100 years. Uh, When when you've got um, technology that is continuing to change and evolve on the tweet that you sent out last month, Five years from now, I don't know if I'll be able to find that again, or if I can find it, can I show it to you in a way that's going to be meaningful? Um, this, this is the real challenge to people who do my job today, is the emerging technologies really require you to be on top of things and require you to be able to uh, move from one technological platform to another. Just think of how many years ago do we have floppy disks where we put our data on these things? Today, if I go to floppy disk, I probably don't have a machine that can read it. So, so all that data that's on that floppy disk, if it hasn't migrated to another format, may be lost forever. So, so it's a it it, it is a challenge.
0: Speaking of Twitter. Um... Or you made aware of there? I think in the last couple of years, Elon Musk had a tweet that was very, very popular. He said, "I want to put the cocaine back in Coca Cola." Do you know about this?
1: No, I don't. But it's not surprising.
0: It, I think, I, I think it's the number one tweet on the platform, across the board that anyone's ever made in terms of likes or traffic. And so, yeah, it'd be, I'd be curious to see if your successors. Uh, look at sort of content that's not even created by their brand or for their, by the agencies that they work with, and want to capture and document, you know, user-generated content like that for posterity's sake. Do you have any thoughts on that?
1: I'm, I mean, I would think that that would be something that you would want to do. Um, I'll give you an example. Um, when we introduced New Coke, uh, we got you know thousands of letters, thousands of phone calls from consumers who were very unhappy about the decision to change the format, We tried to collect as much of that on a sampling basis as we could to try to capture the feelings of people when the formula change took place. Um, so I do think it's important. I think it's important that we uh, document, you know, what others are saying about us in whatever format that happens. Um, I always believe um, that if somebody Wrote a book that was critical about Coca-Cola. I wanted to have a copy of that book. I wanted to see what people were saying and why they were saying it. Uh, and so that we, if, if if confronted by a journalist or something, which certainly has happened multiple times, we had an answer to sort of say, "Hey, well, you know, Joe Smith says that you were a corrupt company and that you did bad things and." Argentina when you want to have a, an answer to a charge like that and to be able to have a, have a good answer so to answer your question um, I would think so um, the challenge again I, I think is how do you preserve that long term yeah um, you know, it, you know do, none of us really know what's going to happen will Twitter even be a thing 10 years from now right um but if it but it, but if it is now, And with this important stuff going on in that uh, that tool we definitely want to to know about it and we want to be able to talk about it and because these things don't go away you know it'll come up again in some other form you know it's the beauty about history is it does tend to repeat itself and 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 so if you've dealt with something once and you should be able to deal with it again and certainly Over the years, the cocaine issue has come up numerous times in different formats, and we've had to had to address it. And uh, yeah, we're so so. I'm I'm curious when you were looking at all of this, did you did you ever see anything from the company respond to this tweet?
0: You know, I I think when I saw it, uh, I did not see right underneath it any sort of replying from the Coca Cola company, and the way Elon shared it, it was not. And it, at all an attack on coke or um sort of a, a negative thing it's just more of a kind of a lighthearted, fun right. tongue-in-cheek type right. of comment they've got a lot of play in the in the community so it could have been you know maybe it was it could have been a great marketing mode for coke you know to jump in on that conversation and, right. and maybe they did i'm not sure though <laughs> the other thing that may, comes to mind about this, con- this conversation about preserving digital media is um uh, I i if you Heard much about blockchain technologies? So are you familiar with that concept? I am So, there's the rise of these new cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin. Um, and setting aside the currency element of it, there's an underlying component that makes Bitcoin work, which is called the blockchain. And if you think about it, a blockchain is just a database, but it's distributed. So, you don't have the whole database on your one computer, it's actually spread out amongst a number of computers. And what that does is it gives you extra resiliency. So in the event that part of the network goes down, it can still preserve itself because it's redundant and duplicated in all these different ways. So um, I haven't done any research on this personally, but I wonder if there are archivists out there that are looking at that as a way to um, provide extra resiliency in their digital archives. Um, And you could probably have private blockchains that aren't necessarily even open to the public or are encrypted or some way kind of hidden if you wanted to make it more inaccessible but just scoop or thought something that was I thought made sense to bring up.
1: I'm sure there are people who are a lot smarter than me who are thinking about
0: this issue and,
1: and how we need to address it and certainly you, you're posing a very interesting option. Uh, I just raised the, the issue because things are so transitory today. Al, uh, just you... Websites, for example. Website can be up one day and disappear the next day. So for instance, if we're gonna brand website and we're putting, you know, information out there, how do we be how can we be sure we can we'll know five years from now, ten years from now, what we were doing on that website in July of twenty twenty three. That's that's the thing that would keep me up at night is just sort of saying when I had it as it, it, a, a, a piece of paper, I had it you know in a, in a analog format. I knew what I could do. I knew that paper was going to last me a hundred years. Uh, I don't know that you know right. website. Be there well, thankfully,
0: that's no longer the monkey on your back. It's it's somebody else's exactly. challenge to deal with.
1: It yeah, <laughs> but it's, it's just one of those things where technology is fantastic. But from a from an archivist perspective. It, it really, is. it's a challenge to sort of say, how do we migrate and how do we migrate, you know, quickly to whatever the next technology is.
0: Let's shift gears for a second. Let's go back. So Norman Rockwell, one of the most iconic American painters, um, how does a company like Coca-Cola get in touch with an artist like that and decide to commission them for some artwork or, uh. Memorabilia. Can you share a bit about that? Sure. In most cases,
1: what, what would happen is the advertising agency that was uh, basically handling uh, media for Coke would address the artist. So in this case, the uh, agency from 195 to 1955 was the Darcy Agency out of St. Missouri. And they were very much at the top of the heap, if you will, in the print advertising uh, arena. And so they would be the ones who would approach a Norman Rockwell and say something like, hey, would you be interested in doing a calendar for the Coca-Cola company? And if he responded in a positive way, then there'd be a meeting between the art director at the company, the representative from the ad agency, and Rockwell. And they would sort of talk about what kind of a look, what kind of a feel, They wanted to have uh, for the finished product. So in this case, uh, uh, Rockwell did four calendars in the 1930s for the company. Did a couple of uh, magazine ads as well. But probably he's best known for the calendars that that he did. Um, So one of the calendars uh, was was simply a a young boy at a fishing hole, just, just looking for the catch. And he has a bottle of Coca Cola next to him to kind of, you know, ease the boredom of uh, fishing all day long. And so, you know, <laughs> you're very much an Americana. Very much, you know, if you think of, you know, something that is totally American, what's more Americana than a young boy, you know, on a summer day fishing at the fishing hole? Uh, and had a bottle, bottle of Coke. So this actually became uh, one of the most popular calendars that the company ever did. It was called Outfishing, and it was uh, based on, I believe, a John Greenleaf Whittier poem. Uh, funny thing is that years after that calendar was published, I had a call from a printing company in Louisville, Kentucky, a man saying, hey, I've got something you might be interested in. I'm always kind of dubious about these calls because you get them every day. And I said, oh, what was that? He said, well, I have a Norman Rockwell calendar. So that got my attention. I said, you mean the real calendar? He said, oh, yeah. Well, apparently, when the calendar was published, they published millions of copies of the calendar. Nobody ever asked for the artwork back and so the printer had held on to it and actually had <coughs> retired and taken it to his personal home. So I had to go uh, to the uh, chairman of the company and asked him if he'd be willing to uh, purchase this uh, painting back from this gentleman. And uh, fortunately for me, uh, the, the chairman said, yeah, by all means, that's part of our history to have it. So I made a trip to Louisville, Kentucky and came home with a Rockwell painting. Quite amazing.
0: But yeah, but that's the kind of... How much did you uh, have to pay for that painting?
1: As... as, as People would say a lot, uh, and that's all, that's all they'll say. <laughs> uh, so I think there's a second piece of the story is that, um, we, we actually were able to identify through some historical records, the model who posed for the calendar. It was a young, at the time, Hollywood child actor who had posed for the calendar. We identified him. He was still alive. Uh. I reached out to him, and he was so excited to know that we had the uh, uh, the calendar, and he wanted to know, you know, could he come to Atlanta to see it and all, that, and we said, well, soon. But in the meantime, I'm going to pitch the story to our PR folks who pitched the story to the Today Show in New York, and so we ended up having the reunion of the model and the calendar on the Today Show on a live broadcast in New York, and that was just Amazing. It's first time in four cool this man had seen the calendar again. So yeah, it was very, very cool.
0: That's so cool. So um when Norman Rockwell began his relationship with Coca Cola, was he already a fairly well known artist at the time?
1: Yeah, he was very well known, particularly um for his magazine covers for Saturday Evening Post. Um and what you did frequently well well we should look for the best commercial artists that you could identify. And so, you know, Rockwell was certainly at the top and, you know, he got top dollar for everything that he did. Um, but then there were other uh, people as well who were also, they're very high uh, level of of, uh, of commercial artists that we used, again, to create magazine ads, to create, you know, serving trays, create calendars. Um, and you know, I've often said that, I could probably teach a mini course in uh, commercial art just by showing you the different artists who worked for Coca-Cola and what their, their specialty was and why they were, they were important. And, um, for us, uh, another one of the artists who worked for us was uh, a man named N.C. Wyeth, who was Andrew Wyeth's father. Uh, N.C. Wyeth was an extremely well-known illustrator in the 1930s, and he did uh, several calendars for the company. And again, we're fortunate to have the original artwork that Wyeth used in creating these calendars. I also referenced a man named Haddon Sunbloom who did this Santa Claus for Coca-Cola for well over 35 years. Uh, Again, a man near the top of his game uh, in terms of being being a commercial illustrator. So you you look to get the best people that you could to do the the artwork. uh, To do the artwork. And then when you moved into a different medium if you moved into radio for instance in the 1960s when you know, pop music was first becoming you know really important then you know coke would hire people like the supremes that hire people like aretha franklin they'd hire people like the beach boys to do their commercials for the things go better campaign uh so you you always looked for kind of who was the cool person in the media that you were working with, so that you would immediately establish some credibility with your uh, consumers, that you know uh, this was a this these top notch people doing you know great work for uh, for the company.
0: Yeah, it's a sort of the uh, the uh, fandom and the celebrity of those people. the 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 relationship that they have with their fans would kind of transfer that energy over to coca-cola and the brand in some way um which makes a ton of sense um for an artist that was maybe not as prominent as a norman rockwell or an nc wyeth that coca-cola would work with would working with coca-cola um help them in their career would that help raise their profile or was it um I think you may, I remember you, you mentioned that a lot of times Coke would not allow the artist to sign their name. Sometimes they did. Can you speak a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. Uh, yes, for the most part, uh, we wanted the artwork to speak for itself. We didn't want the viewer to be distracted by right. the artist and the artist's name. Um, Norman Rockwell was an exception. Sundblum was an exception. N.C. Wyeth was an <laughs> exception. But for the vast majority of the people that we used, we did not... You know, let them use the artwork, but the converse part of that: if you have Coca Cola on your resume, you know that's going to help you get other work with other commercial brands for sure. Because if it's good enough for Coca, absolutely, yeah, you know, absolutely. A lot of other people say, well, oh, it's good enough for them. We'll hire this guy too." Yeah, but yeah so yes, and that is sort of like um, in, the empl- in the employment world today. If you have Coca Cola on your resume. That's going to get people's attention uh, if you're looking for a job somewhere else uh, and you have experience working at Coke or with a brand like Coke, then yeah, you're going to, it's going to give you a leg up to have the next conversation about where you want to go individually.
0: No, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, So, um, Let's talk about um ha- Hatton. What is Hatton's name? Full name? Hattie, the Santa Claus artist Sundberg,
1: Swedish extraction. First name was Hatton, H A D D O N. Last name was S U N D B L O M.
0: Got it. So with Hatton, share that little anecdote we were talking about. About you know, a lot of people don't know that before. Before Hatton in this campaign, Santa Claus was often represented in a lot of different ways, uh, skinny, large, different colors. Talk a bit about that and how that played into kind of the public consciousness of Santa Claus. Sure. Um, Just as you
1: had had mentioned, um, the depictions of Santa Claus over the years were kind of all over the place. Um, Some of them had a very robust kind of Santa Claus. Others had these thin little Santa Clauses. What Hans Sundblom done was he sort of codified the things we think about when we think about Santa Claus. Uh, Think about somebody who is always happy. Somebody who enjoys seeing the family pets, seeing the children, who enjoys bringing the presents on Christmas Eve. Um, And so what Coke was doing when they started this campaign was very, very interesting. Uh, Soft drinks in the 20s, and the early 30s were very much a seasonal product. People drank soft drinks in the summer, spring, maybe early fall. But after that, soft drinks just didn't really have much of a role in people's lives. So what the company started to think about was, well, how do we expand that? How do we expand people's conception of when it's appropriate to have a Coca-Cola? And the idea came about that, well, what if we can associate Coke with the holidays and specifically with Christmas uh, and have Coke be a part of the family traditions? So that was sort of the starting point for the discussion with the ad agency about having a Christmas campaign. And so interestingly enough, the uh, first... uh, Illustration was done in 1931 by a different artist, a man named Fred Meisner. And his interpretation was of a department store Santa Claus taking a break from talking to all the children off and, and having a Coke. And uh, the, the, the folks in our marketing team said, You know, that's a fake Santa Claus. That's not a real guy. It's just a, guy with a costume. That's not what we want, okay? We really want something that's real, something that's authentic. So the next year, they brought in Haddon Sunbloom, and they sort of said to him, give him this charge, say, here's the idea, is, look, this guy's going to go all over the world in the course of 24 hours. He's going to get hot. He's going to get thirsty. So why not have him pause in his duties to enjoy a Coke? And so that's how it started. Is it, all of the all the different scenes that he created in well over thirty years, feature Sam taking a break, maybe sitting in the armchair in the in the family uh, living room for a second and having a coke, uh, maybe uh, be putting the being, putting the presents under the Christmas tree, and the family children are peeking around the corner to see what's going on. And Santa's putting the presents down. In the meantime, taking a little drink of Coke. Um, that was the consistent way that they that he depicted Santa. There was one uh, illustration that I remember where Santa's raiding the family refrigerator to get a turkey leg to go with his uh, with his Coke. Uh so in another one, he's playing with the family pet under the, under the Christmas tree. But in all of the. Uh, Various illustrations that he created. It's all about somebody who has a joy about what he's doing. The Santa Claus is always happy. He's always pleased to see, uh, you know, the family pet, one of the children. He's thrilled to be leaving presents for uh, for the kids. And so, these illustrations of Santa Claus they appeared in the most popular magazines of the time. It was things like the Saturday Evening Post, Life Magazine, magazines that were in virtually every American household. Yes, remember, this is the way people got their information was by the weekly or the monthly magazine. And here's this, fa- this storyline that stays consistent from the early 1930s to the mid 1960s. And so gradually, all of the things Sunbloom incorporated into his Santa Claus are the things we all think about when we think about Santa Claus today. The guy in the red suit, you know, enjoying what he's doing, not doing it out of some sense of duty, but just doing it out of a great sense of, you know, wanting to be there, wanting to bring joy and happiness to people. And so a lot of historians...
0: The, the ruddy red cheeks, the red, red nose, head. All of that. <laughs>
1: A lot lot of cultural historians basically credit Sun with sort of codifying what we think of when we think about Santa Claus. And I think that that's a fair statement because the advertising for Coca-Cola was so pervasive uh, and the imagery was so consistent over such a long period of time that the Coke Santa Claus became the Santa Claus that people expected to see.
0: And That's what just is so fascinating to me. Um, it just shows the power of, yeah, uh, a, a consistent uh, uh, message campaign, just like Coke was consistent with the original product and packaging and pricing. That consistency with you, you figure out a certain story, a certain feeling, a certain emotion you want to evoke in your consumer and you just did it for 30 years. And the next thing you know is like every TV screen playwriter, every movie script author, Every, you know, children's book writer, they've all been exposed to those images of Santa Claus. And so now when they create new art, they don't even realize where that impression is coming from, probably. But it's actually from that campaign, which I think is just such an interesting
1: insight. And it continues to live. Um, we no longer do much in the way of print advertising. But for instance, um, we do have a licensing program. Uh, whereby we can use the Sunbloom Santa Claus images on a lot of Christmas decorations that you might find in a Walmart or you might might find in a Target store. So maybe it's, it's a Christmas tray or it's a, it's a Christmas mug or something that has all one of the uh, Sunbloom illustrations on it. So even though uh, Sunbloom is deceased, is no longer uh, alive, he's still continuing to reinforce that image of uh, of the Coca-Cola Santa Claus today.
0: Well, let me ask you this. So when you left Coca-Cola in 2013, yeah. early 2010s, um, was Coca-Cola hiring new up-and-coming artists, new artists that were alive to do illustration or art like that? Or was that something that had kind of phased out at that point?
1: Yeah, really, for the most part, and those are with a few exceptions, um, the... Golden Age of illustration pretty much ended by the mid 50s. Um, media was shifting very dramatically towards uh, radio and very specifically towards television at that time as the means of getting messages to consumers. Just think of you, you a 30 second ad on a national TV shows. You know that reaches many more people than a ma- magazine circulation would even in the heyday of the most popular magazines. So, yeah, the way you reach consumers change, the, the the role of the illustrator pretty much you know ended by the mid-50s. That's not to say that you still don't occasionally see some piece of artwork that gets used, but uh, today it'd be more likely to be seen as a piece of artwork, like on a can of Coke, than it would be in... Uh, radio, television, or print advertising a campaign. Yeah, we've, yeah, um, we have used like different graphic artists uh, creating special cans of Coca-Cola for specific occasions, and so that way the, the, the role of the artist is still alive, but just in a very, very different way than it was in the in the you know twenties, thirties, forties, even the early fifties.
0: They might be doing concept art or illustrations, but ultimately their work ends up in some sort of animation or, or mixed media or, or something that's digital, a digital media product, something like that. Um, yeah, there's, there's an interesting artist who's alive, his, his name's Murakami, he's over in Japan, and he's done a lot of campaigns with uh, very popular singers like with the, in their music videos or luxury brands, I think maybe like Louis Vuitton and stuff like that. So I was just curious if Coke has ever done anything like that where they've worked with kind of um, celebrity artists or fine artists or anything like that in recent years. Does that Has that ever happened?
1: Well, not in the same way that you're describing it. The, the best example I think I could give you that sort of falls in that uh, category was the creation of the polar bear imagery. Um, that was done sure. by a company called Creative Artists uh, out in California. Um, and again, probably if you want to think about it, the polar bears in their own way are as iconic as the Santa Claus imagery uh, was for Coca-Cola. It was just taking things and putting it into an animated format. Uh, and obviously, you know, polar, the polar bears are still extremely popular. They almost always see them in advertising, again at Christmas time, the polar bears in some places, in some cases, have supplanted Santa Claus, uh, and perhaps they're more relevant to you know people today who are much more used to seeing animated uh, advertising, if you will. Um, and so you, I think that that sort of is is a, is a good tribute to Coke. Is, is a, do go with the trends. They do try to find whatever medium. It will connect more closely with consumers and certainly you know, if i had to identify you know major campaigns of import the polar bears would be right up there um is something that you know has greatly impacted our brand greatly impacted our consumers and is still very you know people look for them today at at christmas time and so i think that they continue to be relevant and obviously we're always looking for whatever the next big thing is. Um, but the polar bears, you know, probably are a good example of something created in the 80s that still is is going strong today.
0: Well, what if there was an artist who's listening to this, whether they're an illustrator or a graphic designer or a digital artist, and they wanted to work on a campaign for Coke, you know, from your perspective, how might they position themselves to have an opportunity to, to do that. Do you have any thoughts on that?
1: Well, uh, it, it, yeah, the, the first thing that would happen is if you sit in a, uh, a concept, uh, into the company, you get a letter from one of our lawyers saying that uh, we don't accept uh, unsolicited uh, uh, pitches. Uh, it would, you would have to come through one of the agencies that we're working with uh, because Right. Otherwise, it gets into a very muddy legal situation about rights and all. So so if you to, were to advise somebody, I would say, you know, find an agency that's working with Coke, bring your concept to them, and let them bring the, the concept to the company. Get a job legal, there. Legal issues will be insurmountable if you try to do it on your own
0: yes yeah that makes sense that makes sense so we touched a little bit about the world of coke um for those who don't know what the world of coke is can you share a bit about what role that plays in coca-cola and how that got to started as a project
1: sure well um for many many years um we had talked about the idea of having a museum in atlanta that would focus on the history of coca-cola um but uh, we just couldn't find a way to make that happen. Um, and so uh, for many, many years, we would have small little displays at the company. And visitors who would come would we, take a look at them. But we just never found the right venue. Uh, when they reinvented, when, when sort of um, underground Atlanta tried to reinvent itself um, you know, several years back, they approached us and asked if we'd be willing to participate in the revitalization program for downtown Atlanta. And so we came to the conclusion that if we're going to do a museum, that that would be the place to go ahead and do it. And so uh, we partnered with Underground uh, Atlanta and created uh, the first world of Coca-Cola. Uh, and operated for uh, several years in uh, a piece of property that was just outside Outside, you know, atop of underground Atlanta. Uh, then later on, um, for the Olympic Games in 1996, we acquired a large piece of property um, where we had our interactive Olympic experiences. And so we decided that that would be a better place for us to be. The revitalization ground really hadn't worked terribly well. And so, uh, we decided that we needed to build. They've
0: something. tried that a couple times, and they they have a hard uh, time. They have a hard time doing it. So it's been, they've so gone through it a couple times, you know.
1: Portion of that property to build a new world of Coca-Cola, which is where we are today. Um, we draw more than a million people a year. It's an interactive experience that starting to talk about the history of the company, but also has you know lots of interactive things for people. It has product tasting all and you know, draw more than a million people a year to it, so my role in both of these uh, enterprises has been to create the historical uh, story that went into each of these museums. and as I mentioned earlier in this program, if you get a chance to do one of these in your your life as, a, as an archivist it's a huge thing. I've had the privilege of doing two separate program of public interpretation of the Coke story, uh, a setting that people can come and enjoy. So if you ask me what's the most important stuff you've done, I'd probably say the two worlds of Coke are right up there because this is where we try to tell our story to our fans, to the people who love the brand. And uh, so every time I go, I get a little bit of a look at sort of part of my career and you know, is always very satisfying to me to you know that you've created something that, that has lasting lasting value. And so, um I, you know, if if I have a legacy, maybe that's that's at least part of it. Uh and is that we have a public facility where people can see some of the history of, of the some of the things we've collected as part of the archives. Um and granted it's it's a very small portion. It's Probably five percent of our, of our collection, but it's an important five percent. Wow! Very, very cool stuff.
0: Do pieces ever rotate in and out, or is it pretty static? Kind of what part of the yeah. collection that's on display? You
1: know, it, it's is is good policy to rotate things in and out because the longer you keep them in an environment yeah. you know, where, where the lighting uh, stays constant you don't have necessarily all the filters that you have in in a uh, archives uh, you can have some damage that occurs to the, the artifact um over over time so it's a good idea to rotate things out periodically so we try to do that there are some things that don't get rotated out because they're too important to stay there we're trying to provide some extra protection to them but that's a good good policy and also by rotating things, it keeps the experience fresh. If you've been there five years ago and we have some new things for you to see today, you don't mind coming back. If you see, oh, I saw that five years ago and it's not really as exciting. So yeah, we we tried it periodically going in and do a little bit of a refreshment. Of
0: Did it surprise you and senior management how many people would come to the museum and the fact that millions of people go a year?
1: I, I think that it was a big surprise to people. I think that um, <laughs> when we first opened, we had hoped maybe to do a couple hundred thousand visitors in the course of a year. I mean, but from almost day one, we did a million. Uh, and so that really, again, sometimes when you're so close to the brand, you don't fully understand its impact on consumers. And you don't understand how closely connected many consumers are to your brand. Um, and I always tell uh, the story. I always tell people is the great thing about Coca-Cola is I have never met anybody who doesn't have some personal story about the brand. And I, and I don't know what it what it is exactly. I'll tell you. I'll tell you mine. My personal story about the brand is when I was like seven, 12 years old, I had a paper out, newspaper out. I delivered papers, you know, seven days a week. And at the end, usually on a Friday night, my treat to myself was to go to the local grocery store and get an ice cold Coke out of, out of the cooler and consume it. And that was my my treat for having completed a successful uh, week delivering newspapers in my local neighborhood. But everybody I talked to, if I asked them, said, "Well, tell me a coke story." They've all got one, it, it, and it could involve a family gathering. It could involve, with the military people, sometimes it's I was in Vietnam, and you know, there was a coke there, reminding me of why it was was there. World War II. So, we have literally hundreds of letters from World War II so, soldiers who told us how important it was that we were able to get coke to troops who were fighting in World War II. Amazing. Every person that I've ever talked to, and most times, as soon as I tell them who I work for, they thought, let me tell you the story about Coke and me. And so that, that's the, the beauty about <laughs> the brand. It is a very personal connection to the consumer. Not many not many people have that. You, know, you talk about Tide detergent. How many people have a personal connection to Tide? Now, I'm not knocking Tide, but I'm just saying. But it's just, a different brand, huh? Yes. So we're very blessed. That's a, a And blessing. I think it's
0: the, uh, it's a blessing and it's also just a testament to the success and effectiveness of the marketing element of the business where, uh, having those messages out there, it, it, I think any brand would want basically your product to be synonymous with something like America or uh, fishing, or uh, you know, uh, fighting for justice and freedom overseas in World War II, or whatever it might be, and it's like somehow Coke was able to be be there in all those moments, those cultural moments, and uh, and people are willing to accept uh, Coke being a part of that, you know, rather than looking at that as some sort of like cynical or um, uh, 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 this, you know, I don't know, practice or something like that. So it's a uh, It's very interesting to hear that all those stories come about. And I think, um, you know, as somebody who lives in Atlanta, I've been to World of Coke handful of times. Um, Definitely when I was younger, in the 90s, early 2000s, I would always say, you know, Atlanta is an amazing city to live in. Great restaurants, lots of parks, lots of places to walk and get around. Um, But I would say it's not necessarily, didn't have that many tourist attractions. So I think when the World of Coke came about, Everybody who's coming in, the the airport's the busiest uh, uh, passenger airport in the world. People come through the city. They're looking for something to do. They're looking to entertain uh, clients or family members from in tech coming into town. It was just an, a no-brainer thing to do to go to the World of Coke. You know, it was just a great kind of Atlanta almost museum or, yeah, um, uh, cultural uh, landmark that, that a city could have and kind of uh, share with people. Um, did you get that sense as well?
1: Oh, for sure. I mean, no question that uh, opening public facility to people made a big difference. And it stimulated other people to do new things as well. So, for instance, on the same piece of property where the world of Coca-Cola exists today, we provided land to the Georgia Aquarium so that Bernie Marcus's associates build a world-class aquarium in downtown Atlanta. Later on, we provided another parcel of land to the Center for Civil Rights so that they could build another, you know, uh, major attraction all linked together. And, you know, of course, uh, we're really within a stone's throw of the College Football Hall of Fame, which came after World of Coke, and uh, the CNN Center, which was, again, a sort of a landmark uh, tourist attraction once that was established. In downtown. So now we have a, a really you know, core group of attractions that are all within walking distance of each other. That you know, people coming to town can enjoy and can experience uh, things that w- weren't weren't available uh, for many many years. I think what Coke did was we established a concept that hey, this city could use more things. And more varied things you know, will keep people coming to town, uh, keep our economy strong, uh, help the the hospitality industry, and the tourism industry in the city. I don't think there's a question that the world of Coke was sort of the the catalyst, the start of all of this. And so, um, you
2: know,
1: uh, I, I wish I could say that we were we we had we had, we, had, we, had, we knew this all along, but I think it was something. That, it know, was fortunate. It was, it was fortunate. Yes. And we took a leadership role. And so that's, that was the key. Yes. We took the chance. We put us, put it out there and people came. It's like field of dreams. I just just remember
0: as a kid, yeah, when I was, uh, yeah, it turned out to be that way this time, but I just remember as a kid, you know, under 10, under 15, if you ever had a friend visiting in town or family members visiting in town, like world of Coke was the number one thing to think about going to do. And it's just because it was like this classic Atlanta thing. So, um, did some of the revenue and proceeds from the museum go to finance the archiving efforts at Coke? Did that make its way back to them?
1: Uh, the quick answer is no. <laughs> uh, the uh, this was World of Coke was uh, was always built as a um, facility that we hoped would break even because if, if nothing else right it it is a marketing tool uh mm-hmm. and so we hope that you know the revenues would offset the expense and there's a lot of expense in running a facility like that and in keeping it up staffing it appropriately and all that that sort of stuff so uh so nothing so the the, the p l for the world of coke kind of stays focused on that piece of property um now our part I see in that that program again i think helps us present the argument that heritage is important history is important not only to us but to our consumers
0: i love that that makes a ton of sense That makes a ton of sense well as we wrap things up i think i just have one other question that was on my mind i was curious about you might have an answer to um Everyone knows about the Coca Cola secret recipe, the secret formula. I'm just curious, is that on a piece of paper? Is that somewhere in the archives? Well, uh,
1: I don't think I can answer that directly because I've never personally seen it. Uh, But we. uh, Okay. We went, uh, we we made great fanfare, I guess it's probably five years ago when we uh, moved the secret formula. Which had been in uh, the Trust Company Bank, which today is Truist Bank, uh, from downtown Atlanta to the World of Coca-Cola, and created a whole new exhibition around the secret formula. So the secret formula is at the World of Coca-Cola, but I can't tell you what what it looks like or how how it feels because nobody's ever showed it to me. Uh, but if you go there as a visitor, you can at least experience uh, a little bit of the. Uh, mystery of the secret formula itself.
0: Is it something like, um, you know, when you become president of the United States, you get the nuclear launch codes. Is it something that like only very senior management have access to? What, what's the story there?
1: <laughs> we, we, we've always said that only a few people have access to the formula, but we won't really identify who those people are um so is it likely that the chairman of the board knows possibly but we've never confirmed that the most we will say is that only a very few people know it and have access to and that's what makes it excellent
0: excellent (laughs) yes and i and i would imagine um this is getting kind of um you know uh, insider baseball but you know in business you can have a patent on something that's innovative right but with patents you have to disclose it you have to publicize it but then you can have what's called a trade secret and the trade secret obviously makes a lot more sense for this because you would never actually want to disclose what's in the coke formula um and uh so that's super interesting so we'll have to leave that uh mystery for another day i guess <laughs> cool well phil thank you so much for chatting with me this has been incredible um really interesting to hear some of these stories um about your background and the different artists and, um, that you came across and learned about working with Coke. Anything else that's on your mind that you want to share? Um, maybe um, some parting words or some sort of um, place to point people to if they want to learn more about some of what we discussed.
1: Well, if you're looking for a book uh, and want to learn more about the history of Coca-Cola, I would strongly recommend a book called Secret Formula, written by Frederick Allen. I believe it's the best overall history of Coca-Cola that, that's out there today. And so I certainly would encourage you, if you have interest in learning more, uh, Rick Allen was a CNN journalist. He's a very, very thoughtful uh, and, and strong researcher. The things that he has in the book you count on, he, he footnotes it extremely well. Uh, and so if folks want to learn more, go get a copy of Secret Formula.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Phil. It's great chatting with you.
1: Thank you so much. Enjoyed it.
0: All right. Have a good day. Bye, everybody. Thanks for tuning in today. If you haven't picked up a copy of the Unstarving Artist book, go ahead and pick up yours at unstarvingartistbook.com. See you next time.